Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Have you been waiting for just the right job? Then welcome to the end of your search. Amazon has seasonal warehouse jobs in your area, and now is a great time to apply. You can start getting paid right away and work close to home. Applying is easy. You don't even need an interview. So what are you waiting for? Come join the team and get a great seasonal job offer today. Visit Amazon.com slash hiring. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer. Before we begin, I wanted to let you know that this episode of The Conspirators includes a special guest appearance by Nina Instead of the Already Gone podcast. If you haven't subscribed to Already Gone yet, you really need to check it out. It's one of the best true crime podcasts out there. And now, on with the show. The idea that people could talk to the dead is a fad that's come and gone over the years. There have been multiple instances throughout history where people have attempted to contact their loved ones from beyond the grave. The modern spiritualist movement really had its biggest resurgence in the mid to late 1800s. Back then it became commonplace for groups of people to gather around a table and hold seances. It was the Netflix and chill of its time. A large influx of immigrants from Europe to America brought with them a whole host of local superstitions and customs that quickly became intertwined with the various religious communities in the U.S. During this time, many mediums and other religious gurus set up shop in some of the largest metropolitan areas across the country. One hotspot for spiritualism in the early part of the 20th century was Detroit. It was in the Motor City that in 1921, a man became so convinced that he could pierce the veil into the afterlife that he decided to go there personally. Earlier that year, a local psychic and lecturer named Thomas Lynn Bradford posted an ad in a Detroit newspaper under the pseudonym Professor Flynn. In the ad, he announced that he was looking for a person interested in what he called spiritualistic science. A woman named Ruth Starkweather Duran replied, Mrs. Duran came from a prominent Detroit family, although she herself had only recently returned to the city from Duluth, Minnesota. She was a writer and a lecturer, and the ad piqued her curiosity. Mrs. Duran was a member of the Protestant Episcopal Church, and although she claimed not to believe in psychic phenomenon or spiritualism, she still agreed to meet with Bradford to find out more about his project. The plan he laid out for her was the most radical thing she'd ever heard. If it worked, he convinced her it would change the very nature of reality altogether. Bradford's plan involved nothing less than proving conclusively that there was an afterlife. So it went that they agreed to set the professor's plan in motion on February 5th, 1921. On that day, Bradford finished typing his final thoughts in a manuscript he'd been writing that summarized his views on spiritualism and the nature of heaven. 
He left the final sheet in the typewriter's carriage. Then he went up to his rented room, blew out the pilot on the heater, turned on the gas jets, and laid down in bed to allow himself to suffocate to death. A few days after Bradford's death, Duran and a group of spiritualist leaders gathered around the parlor in her home awaiting a message from Bradford in what would be the first of several seances they conducted. Duran and a few other members of the group claimed later on they had been initially skeptical that anything would happen, and they weren't disappointed because nothing did. Despite following Bradford's instructions to the letter regarding the way the seance was to be conducted, no message came from Bradford that night, or any other spirit for that matter. Although Duran did claim that she felt a strange sensation throughout the ceremony, as if there were a presence there with them, just on the outskirts of the room. Around the same time, another spiritualist named Lulu Mack claimed to have made contact with Bradford's spirit on the other side of town. Unwilling to be upstaged, the group reconvened on February 9th. During this seance, Duran claimed to have heard the faint voice of Bradford calling out his own name. A local reverend suggested that perhaps Bradford's spirit hadn't yet fully crossed over and was still clinging to the earthly realm. On February 12th, a week after Bradford's suicide, the group tried to make contact again, this time on the scheduled date when Bradford claimed he would make his presence known. Duran informed the media and spread the word throughout the spiritualist community. Several spiritualist groups simultaneously held concentration parties to help channel the spiritual energies Bradford claimed would be needed to get his message across the dimensions. That evening, at 9 o'clock, in her dimly lit parlor, Duran claimed to feel another presence, much stronger this time. She stood staring into a dark corner for several minutes, before placing her hands upon her temples and ordering that the lights in the room be turned out. After a few minutes, she told everyone she could hear the professor's voice. It started out quietly, but soon gained strength. She ordered one of the people in the room to transcribe the message, and for half an hour, she spoke, allegedly with the professor's words. The message began, I am the professor who speaks to you from the beyond. She went on to relate a rather generic tale of the professor's death and reawakening in the afterlife. By the time Duran was finished and the lights were back on, everyone involved was suitably impressed. Of course, there's no real evidence that anything Duran said or did was remotely true. But she would claim that for years after, Bradford's spirit would visit her regularly and impart other bits of knowledge. One message that allegedly came from Bradford said that, Through spiritualism, the world will be reclaimed, sin will be vanquished, suffering will end. The physical in man will cease to be, and physical death, that is, the only death, will be no more. Men will live on earth forever, even as they live forever in the spirit world. But whether you choose to believe in the spiritualist movement or not, Keep in mind, there were a lot of people around that time that did believe in it fervently. They were all looking for something more. To open the curtains that hid the great beyond and see what came next. Back in Detroit in the 1920s, there lived a self-styled divine prophet who may have looked too closely beyond the veil. And he ended up paying for what he found with the lies of himself, his wife, and children. 
I'm Nate Hale. And I'm Nina Instead, reporting to you live from the town that once held the title Murder City, USA. And this is The Conspirators. In 1929, Detroit was bursting at the seams with a massive number of immigrants who moved into the area looking to take advantage of Henry Ford's famed $5 workday. By 1910, the official census stated that the city had 285,000 residents. But by 1929, that number had ballooned all the way up to a million and a half people. There were few places in America that was more of a melting pot of European cultures than Detroit. There was plenty of work to go around with the assembly lines running day and night. In many ways, Detroit was one massive work camp, full of rooming houses that rented out beds by the eight-hour shift. And those that didn't work the line at one of the automotive plants found other ways to service the people who did. Enter Benedetto Evangelista, a.k.a. Benny Evangelist, a self-proclaimed divine prophet who hung up a shingle and began offering his spiritual services to the community. Benny Evangelist lived and worked near Eastern Market, where farmers came every morning to sell produce to the local Italian grocers and fruit cart vendors. Benny worked out of the home he shared with his wife and four small children on St. Albans Street. He was born in Naples, Italy in 1896. He first came to America living in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania with his brother, Antonio. When Benny began having mystical visions of a very non-Catholic nature, Antonio disowned him in the two parted ways. Benny found work on a railroad construction crew in York, Pennsylvania. His best friend back then was a man named Aurelius Angelino. The two of them shared an interest in the occult, and they both dabbled in Ouija boards and tarot cards. The occult affected both men deeply. In 1919, Aurelius went mad and attacked his family with an axe. He murdered two of his children in cold blood before authorities managed to apprehend him. He was deemed criminally insane and sent away to a mental institution, after which Benny moved with his family to Detroit. Detroit was a land of opportunity for Benny Evangelista. Henry Ford's $5 workday meant people had money to spend on extracurricular activities, like seances and psychic readings. Many of these former peasants brought their superstitions and religious convictions with them from the old world. Benny saw the opportunity this presented and sought ways to exploit it. New religions were popping up practically overnight all over town. Benny knew the people would be searching for a spiritual leader to guide them. Benny hung a hand-painted sign outside his home on the corner of St. Aubin and Mack Avenue, advertising his great celestial planet exhibition to the public. If you were to stand at just the right angle, from the street you could catch a glimpse of it if you wanted, and it was quite a sight to behold. Benny worked occasionally as a carpenter, and he put those skills to use in his basement altar. He built it out of paper mache, chicken wire, and wood. Nearly a dozen wax figures surrounded an electrified display consisting of all nine planets, and at its center was a large sun containing an enormous glowing eye. In between carpentry jobs, Benny sold potions and performed psychic healings out of his basement workshop. 
He charged his more well-heeled clients as much as $10 for a reading, or just for the chance to enter his basement and touch his display. His family could afford to live in a nice house with a wide front porch and fresh green paint adorning the wood exterior. And from his porch, you could see the streetcars going by, carrying potential customers on their way to work or to Hudson's department store downtown. On the morning of July 4th, 1929, a man named Vincent Elias came to Evangelist's home to discuss a real estate deal. No one answered the door to his knock, so he let himself in. He found Benny Evangelist in his office seated behind his desk, or at least most of him was seated behind the desk. Benny had been decapitated. His severed head lie on the floor behind his chair. His body was slumped forward in the chair with his hands crossed over his chest. Elias let out a startled cry and stumbled out of the room. He ran from the house and called the police. They found the three older children, girls between four and eight years old, in a room on the second floor. Their skulls had been crushed with an axe. One of the girls had an arm that had nearly been severed as well, something the detectives believed may have resulted from a slip of the axe. Benny's wife, Santina, was found in her bed along with their 18-month-old son, Mario. Both of them had been bludgeoned to death with an axe. Santina was nearly fully decapitated as well. Everyone was dressed in their bedclothes, indicating the attack occurred sometime during the night. Most estimates put the murders sometime between midnight and 3 a.m. Nearly the entire Detroit Police Homicide Squad was dispatched to the house on St. Auburn Street. Alongside Evangelist's severed head, they also found three large framed photographs of a child in a coffin. The child turned out to be Evangelist's son, who died before his first birthday. Although the practice was fading in popularity, it was still somewhat commonplace back then to keep photos of your deceased loved ones. Along with the photos, numerous copies of a book Evangelist had self-published were scattered around the room. It was titled, The Oldest History of the World Discovered by Occult Science. He wasn't much of a writer, as you can tell from the opening preface. My story is from my own views and signs that I see from 12 to 3 a.m. I began on February 2nd, 1906 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania and it was completed on February 2nd, 1926 in the city of Detroit, county of Wayne, state of Michigan. On this new earth, the last one was created by God, the Father, Celestial Ad, the great prophet Miel. We call it today the Great Union Federation of America. I am with the power of God, and I respect this nation. In this book, I shall express all my views of the past 20 years. In this great continent are all the generations. By the willingness of God, my respect to this nation, I shall do my best to tell you of the old world. I shall tell you about the world before God was created up until the last generation, and I shall explain to you your descendants. I'll spare you any more. The rest doesn't make any sense either. Despite all the police officers on the premises, they failed to keep dozens of newspaper reporters and gawkers from contaminating the crime scene. They did manage to preserve a single bloody fingerprint on a doorknob, but they were unable to match it to a suspect. 
To make matters worse, most of Evangelist's neighbors and clients were recent Sicilian and Italian immigrants who tended to stick to the traditional code of silence known as omerta. Detectives were unable to get anyone to make an official statement, much less give up the names of any potential suspects. Considering the large number of potions and magical trinkets Evangelist kept in his inventory, it was obvious he had a fairly sizable client base. But few people would admit to having been a client. Police used what little evidence they had to come up with three different theories. Theory one, based on a number of notes found in Evangelist's home, suggested Benny was being extorted by La Mano Nera, or the Black Hand. The Black Hand was a loose-knit group of Italian criminals that acted as sort of a precursor to the Mafia. They typically preyed upon Italian immigrants using intimidation and murder to extort money. The famous opera singer Enrico Caruso had once been a victim of the Black Hand's extortion racket. A few years earlier in Chicago, a shotgun-toting member of the gang was responsible for murdering 15 people. There was even a rumor that the infamous Axeman of New Orleans, who terrorized that city back in 1919, he might have been a member of the Black Hand. It stands to reason that the Black Hand might have wanted to extort Benny Evangelist. One of the threatening letters the police found was dated six months earlier and said, quote, This is your last chance. The problem with the Black Hand extortion theory is that it was widely believed that by 1929, the group had already evolved into a more traditional mafia structure. That meant many of the penny-ante extortion rackets were a thing of the past, not to mention the fact that although Evangelist had some money, there were plenty of wealthier immigrants living nearby. The second theory suggested that a 42-year-old local man named Umberto Tecchio was responsible for the murders. Tecchio visited Evangelist's home the night before the bodies were found. Evangelist dabbled in real estate along with his other business ventures. The night before his death, Tecchio came by to make a final payment on a house he bought from Evangelist. Tecchio and a friend named Angelo Depoli, who went with him to Evangelist's house, were brought in for questioning. Police found an axe, a sharp knife, and a suspiciously clean pair of work boots in the barn behind the boarding house the men shared. Tecchio and Depoli refused to confess to the murders, and they claimed they went out drinking after dropping the last payment by Evangelist's home. It was later revealed that Tecchio actually knifed his brother-in-law to death during an altercation, although it's unclear how he managed to escape prosecution for the crime. With no confession and no physical evidence to connect the men to the crime, they were eventually released. Tecchio died a few years later. Sometime after that, a detective located a new witness, a newspaper delivery boy who claimed he had seen Tecchio standing on Evangelist's front porch on the morning of the murders. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. 
The third theory is fairly compelling as well. Remember Benny's old friend, Aurelius Angelino, who murdered his children with an axe? At some point, not too long before the murders, Angelino escaped from the mental institution where he was being held. He was never located, and while it makes for an interesting theory that he could have come to Detroit looking for his old friend, there's no evidence that this occurred. Nonetheless, it's still possible. According to Evangelist's memoir, he tended to receive his visions between midnight and 3 a.m. Imagine for a minute that Angelino found his way to his old friend's home during this time. Perhaps he slid in through an open window, only to find the man who left him to rot in a Pennsylvania insane asylum sitting there in a trance. One interesting clue about the murders actually relates more toward Evangelist's other job as a carpenter. He'd made enough from his different business dealings to purchase a farm upon which he planned on building a new house for he and his family to live. The night before the murders, Evangelist made a call to the watchman at a house that was being torn down on Hurabo Street. He told the watchman that he had purchased all the scrap lumber, and he had arranged for the wood to be picked up the next day. Evangelist said that he would meet the delivery men to pay them before making the 60-mile drive out to the farm. However, nobody showed up to deliver the wood. Of course, Evangelist didn't show up for obvious reasons, being dead and all. But how did the delivery crew know not to arrive? Evangelist planned on paying them in cash, yet no money was found in his home on the day of the murders. Even worse, police were unable to determine the names of the people in the delivery crew in order to find out who called them off. On July 10, 1929, police received a letter signed by someone calling himself the murderer, claiming that a hatchet would be found in a house in the 5400 block of Lincoln Avenue. Police searched almost every house in that block and found nothing. Just three years later, another gruesome occult murder occurred in roughly the same area of the city. Could they be connected? On November 20th, 1932, police found the body of James J. Smith tied to a crudely built altar and stabbed through the heart with a silver knife. Police arrested a man named Robert Harris, the founder of another Detroit-based religious cult. Harris claimed Smith had been a willing sacrifice and had offered himself up to be killed. Since an autopsy showed that Harris actually knocked Smith out with a wagon axle, his story was largely discounted. Once in police custody, Harris declared himself to be a king and proudly announced his plans to murder several more people, including the Detroit mayor. He even confessed to Benny Evangelist's murder, although his fingerprints didn't match the bloody print they found at the scene. He was eventually ruled out as a suspect in Evangelist's murder, although he did go to prison for the murder of James J. Smith. One other series of bizarre murders that occurred around the same time that some people have tried to tie together with Benny Evangelist is the case of the Witch of Del Rey. Rose Veris was a Hungarian immigrant who owned a boarding house on Del Rey Avenue. On August 27, 1931, police arrived at the boarding house with a warrant for Rose's arrest for her suspicion in the deaths of ten men who had lived under her roof. Police received a tip that Veris was murdering her boarders after the death of 68-year-old Steve Mack, who died after falling or being pushed off a ladder. Police discovered that Varys had taken out insurance policies on each of her tenants, and she made on average of $4,000 for each of their lives. In total, police found over 50 insurance policies, many of which had paid out. 
It wasn't easy to get a conviction against Varys, since many of her Hungarian neighbors were thoroughly convinced she was an actual witch. They believed that she could make children sick and men lose their jobs just by looking them in the eye. Many people believed that she possessed powers of black magic, including the power to transform herself into a wolf. But as more African Americans began moving into the neighborhood, it became more and more difficult for the woman to intimidate her neighbors. An African-American man named George Halaz testified that he saw a pair of arms push Steve Mack off the ladder when it was propped next to an upstairs bedroom. Another African-American neighbor also came forward, testifying that Varys offered him $500 to keep quiet about anything incriminating he might have seen. There is no real evidence that Varys was in any way tied to the evangelist murder. But that hasn't prevented some amateur detectives from trying to make a connection since they lived in relative proximity to one another, and since both murders had an occult angle. Varys was found guilty of Mac's murder and sentenced to life in prison. However, in 1945, Varys, now in her 60s, was retried and exonerated. The most prolific serial killer in Detroit's history up until that point went free. The neighborhood where Evangelist's home stood has long since been demolished. Evangelist's house was destroyed in the mid-1940s, and no one has built on the vacant lot since. As often happens with the locations of violent murders, some people claim the empty lot is haunted. Others claim to see the spirit of a headless ghost walking around or hear disembodied screams in the night. No matter what you believe, one thing is certain. The murder of Benny Evangelist and his family has remained unsolved to this day. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Special thanks to Nina Instead of the Already Gone podcast for appearing on this show. If you're into true crime, and if you're listening to me now, I suspect you are, you really need to check out Already Gone. I wanted to mention that I've added a donate button to our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, to help cover some of the costs associated with producing the show week after week. I also encourage you to tell your friends and family about our show, and rate and review us on iTunes. I know a lot of podcasts say that, but it's true that it really helps. If you're not on iTunes, you can also check us out on Stitcher, the Google Play Store, and your favorite podcast app. Thanks again for listening. Advocate for those who need support and make a difference in your community. Earn a Bachelor of Social Work from Grand Canyon University. GCU is a premier private Christian university offering online social work programs with affordable tuition and personalized support. In addition, you can earn your Master of Social Work by completing the Bachelor of Social Work plus just one additional year instead of two. Find your purpose. Visit gcu.edu slash social work to learn more.